everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Craig L. Simons about his Naval History of the Second World War, entitled World War II at Sea, A Global History. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, sure. I, uh, I have been a naval historian for about 50 years. I started out uh, writing a dissertation about naval history when I was in graduate school and uh, taught at most of my career at the U.S. Naval Academy, which I have to say is probably the best job in the world, teaching those bright, energetic, enthusiastic young men and women. Uh, I taught naval history there for more than 30 years, as well as uh, other courses, but primarily naval history, and then retired. Uh, But as the old joke goes, I failed retirement and was (laughs) called uh, back, summoned to the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, where I am now, holding the Ernest J. King Chair of Naval History at that institution, which is the second best job in the world. So I've been a, a teacher and a writer for most of my life. Your uh, corpus of, of, of work is really vast. Uh, I, uh, many people are probably f- uh, familiar with you from your works on uh, Civil War naval history, uh, Lincoln as Admirals being uh, uh, one of uh, your most uh, successful books. But you've also written quite extensively on World War II. There's your history of the Battle of Midway. Uh, more recently, there's your uh, uh, account of the uh, D-Day invasion. Uh, it, was it that... Uh, what was it that was it that that which led you to write this more comprehensive history, or were you motivated by other factors? Uh, yes, uh, it that it was that experience. I taught uh, the Civil War course as well as Naval History at the Naval Academy for most of thirty years, and the Civil War, of course, is a fascinating subject. And I did several books on it, not only about Civil War naval history, but Civil War military history. I did several biographies of. Uh, Confederate and Union generals. I wrote two books on the Battle of Gettysburg. Everybody has to write a book on the Battle of Gettysburg, I suppose, um, <laughs> and enjoyed all of that. And the Civil War community is legion throughout the country, and there's lots of experts, and the community of scholars who are devoted to the Civil War is, is a great group, and I enjoyed lots of interactions with them. But I'll be honest with you, um, the learning curve for me, where I learned new things as I did work, and went, wow, look at that, I didn't know that. Uh, began to flatten out a bit for me. Not that I learned everything there was to learn. That's clearly not the case. But uh, having taught naval history, which comes all the way up to the present, and therefore in uh, doing a lot of reading in the uh, Second World War, I thought that's a new field that I could plow. And that led me to the books on Midway, which has been very successful, uh, and the book on D-Day. And those experiences led me to think, you know, a lot of people have done focused studies on particular campaigns, Midway being a classic example, D-Day being a classic example. And I absolutely enjoyed doing those books, but they are component parts of a much broader canvas. Uh, As the subtitle of my new book suggests, uh, the word, he was a global conflict. The oceans, after all, all connect with one another. And there were a dozen nations that had maybe significant enough to to move the trajectory of the war one way or another. And putting all of that together in a single volume uh, was both terrifying and uh, uh, exciting prospect. And my uh, helpful editor at Oxford, Tim Bent, suggested that this was a something that actually could be done in a single volume. 
Um, and so I, I jumped into that project with great enthusiasm and I've loved every minute of it. One of the things that really comes out in your book is just how the insights you gain from adopting that perspective, because you, there are many books written about, say, the Battle of the Atlantic, the Battle of the Mediterranean, the battles in the Pacific, and even whole campaigns and, and, and histories of, of, of the wars in those oceans. But as you explained, to, to uh, see it in isolation really misses the degree to which there was so much interaction of events and interaction, most importantly, of considerations, particularly of the British and the Americans. I think that's true. Um, one of the things that I sometimes refer to when I'm giving talks uh, about the Second World War at Sea is to mention the butterfly effect, which at first blush doesn't seem like it would have much relevance, but I, I, it's a useful metaphor. The idea of this, of course, is that small actions in one corner of the world can have uh, a ripple effect that extends over a broad area and can actually contribute to a much more significant event elsewhere in the world. And I think that's what happened in the war at sea between 1939 and 1935. The Battle of the Atlantic, investigated as a standalone subject, is a fascinating subject, and there's much to be learned approaching it that way. But of course, the dearth of shipping and the need for additional escorts to protect that shipping as it made its way across the North Atlantic influenced the availability of shipping, both transport shipping and escort shipping, worldwide. So that the impact of the Battle of the Atlantic influenced the transition of forces in the Mediterranean as the British tried to protect their line of communication between Gibraltar and Suez. It affected the American effort to try to uh, seize the island of Gibraltar in the Solomon Islands and then work their way up the Solomon Islands chain and then subsequently in the uh, Central Pacific Drive. Uh, so all of these things were interconnected if in no other way than by the common denominator of logistical support. And there's an old line that I'm sure many of your listeners have heard, maybe all of your listeners have heard, that while uh, amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. And although logistics aren't as sexy as operational history, logistics can determine what it's possible to do so that the interconnectedness of these very event, various events from the Atlantic to the Pacific to the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean, even to the Arctic Ocean, all are part of the same connected story. And that's the one I tried to tell in this book. Another way in which you uh, tell it is that you don't start in 1939. You open the book in 1930. Now, I was wondering if you could explain why opening it in 1930 informs the understanding of events that take place a decade and a decade and a half later? Yeah, that's a good question. I wanted to start with the London Naval Disarmament Conference of 1930 for a couple of reasons. One was to introduce uh, the common denominators that all the navies dealt with. What are battleships and carriers and submarines and what restrictions or limitations could there be or should there be on all of those? 1930, of course, Germany was still under the limitations of the Versailles Treaty, so they had a very small navy. Russia was still recovering from the uh, Civil War uh, that created the Soviet Union, so they didn't have much of a navy. But by and large, the then major naval powers, the Anglo-Americans in particular, uh, helped to define uh, what was the index of naval power. So that's kind of an introduction to ship types and weaponry and that kind of business, but also because, in a way, um, 
the lead up into the Second World War, which began in Europe in 1939 and began for the United States on December 7, 1941, really began in the early part of the 1930s with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria and turning it into the puppet state of Manchukuo, and then the Japanese invasion of China and what the Japanese called the China Incident, but which was in fact a full-fledged war. So all of these were elements uh, of, of this global phenomenon that we call, we in the West call World War II. As you point out in the book, the Japanese invasion of China had an important direct effect in the sense that it was predominantly an army operation, one in which the Navy played a uh, a supporting role. But of course, as you described, the Navy was not did not want to see itself as a supporting actor. Well, one of the things to understand about the Japanese, uh, and, and I'll just as an aside, I'll mention that I tried very hard in this book to provide a cultural and political context for all the strategic decisions that the major players uh, had in this. There's been a lot of study about how the British and Americans worked together to figure out when they were going to do something and what they were going to do and how they would do it together. And there was a pulling and tugging about grand strategy between the British and the Americans. But there was also uh, an interesting political dynamic that took place within the Axis powers. The Axis, the Germans, the Japanese, and the Italians, were not really an alliance in the classic sense of that word. They were all on the same side. They had common enemies, mostly, more about that later perhaps, but they didn't really inform each other or make their plans together. In fact, for the Japanese, a lot of the decision-making, the background to the strategic decision-making, emerged out of the intense rivalry between the Japanese army and the Japanese navy. I mean, I know there's a, a... a rivalry between the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army, particularly on the second Saturday in December when they meet on the football field. But that's a pale shadow next to the kind of dysfunctional relationship between the Japanese Army and Navy. I mean, they were uh, at daggers drawn with one another. So while the Army was interested in resolving the problem in China, the Navy felt like they were a second fiddle in that war, and perhaps they needed their own war. And and so out of all of that uh, rivalry and confrontation emerged a strategy that led them on that slippery slope down into uh, the foolish, foolish decision to attack the United States in December 1941. One of the things that stands out in terms of that comparison of the three Axis powers was that uh, for all that rivalry, the Japanese Navy had a a uh, very important role in terms of deciding grand strategy. And the contrast here is that, that I was noting was with the Germans and the Italians. And I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit about the, the navies that they had going into the war and their role in terms of deciding the, the course of events in, in 1939, 1940. Sure. Of course, when we think of the German Navy, uh, the tendency now is to think of their submarines U-boats, Unterseebooten, or or submarines, uh, which very nearly broke that supply line across the North Atlantic in 1940, 1941. But going into the war in 1939, uh, there were members of the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, who were determined to create a surface navy. Uh, The Bismarck and the Tirpitz, these oversized 50,000-ton battleships, uh, and then the uh, the uh, battle cruiser twins, the Scharnhorst and the Gneisenau, uh, again, 770 foot long 
uh, vessels with 11-inch guns and capable of 33 knots. These, these were Germany's effort to emerge as a genuine surface rival uh, to the Royal Navy. Um, Hitler had told Eric Rader, the head of the German Navy, that uh, he should plan on not having to fight a war at sea until perhaps 1944-45, and Rader was counting on that. But of course, Hitler convinced himself of the fecklessness of the Western powers and decided to accelerate his schedule and invaded Poland in September of 1939. And Rader was frankly not ready for that. The rivalry in the German Navy was between Raider and his advocacy of a surface Navy and Karl Dönitz and his advocacy of submarines or U-boats. Um, and that was eventually resolved in the favor of Dönitz, but perhaps too late. By the time Germany committed itself to making U-boats the highest priority in the industrial production machine, uh, the Allies had managed to uh, find countermeasures and an additional increase in the number of escorts so that the uh, U-boat threat uh, could be, if not entirely suppressed, at least uh, made not uh, critical uh, by late 1943 and certainly by 1944. Um, The Italian Navy was somewhat different. The Italian Navy was actually pretty substantial. It was as large as the French Navy and the fourth or fifth largest Navy in the world, significantly larger than the German Navy, the Italian problem was twofold. One was the lack of fuel. Uh, fuel plays a major role for the Japanese. It plays a major role for the Italians. They couldn't get enough of it, so they couldn't operate as often, which led to the second problem was uh, inexperience and operational practice meant that they were inefficient, less efficient than the Royal Navy, um, in the Mediterranean confrontation, where the, in the Mediterranean there were actually some substantial surface naval engagements, good old-fashioned battleship uh, slugfests, um, and the Italians, who had beautiful ships but were less efficient in operating them because of the fuel shortage, found themselves on the short end of the stick. And the rivalry between the Germans and the Italians is interesting. The, the Italians would say to the Germans, we need more fuel so we can operate our ships. And the Germans said, essentially, we'll prove that you'll do something with them more than just sit around in port and maybe we'll give you more fuel. But that, of course, was a, a losing proposition for both ends. And the British ended up hanging on to their control of the Mediterranean, though it was a near-run thing. That is one of the things that emerges in your description of the operations in 1939, 1940, 1941, which is that you have this German Navy, which is uh, still, you know, under development. You have this Italian Navy, which looks impressive, but as you point out, is not as uh, operationally efficient, is not as well trained. But you have this Royal Navy, which has this storied reputation, which has this very impressive fleet. And yet even they are struggling to meet the demands of the war that you you think that they'd have a sufficient number of battleships, sufficient number of aircraft carriers. And yet not only are they, you know, constrained, are they strained to the limit in terms of meeting all the demands of the surface warship, they're also facing the demands of the resumed uh, 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 U-boat war, and and even though they had the benefit of and in previous wars of experience as to how to handle the problem of of having their trade cut off. Well, they did have the experience of World War One, and that was quite helpful to the British. In World War One, uh, when the U-boat threat first emerged, uh, the British uh, were reluctant to adopt the idea of protecting their merchant ships with convoys. 
And if you think about it, it's almost counterintuitive. A convoy groups all the merchant ships together into a nice, convenient, big, fat target for the U-boats. And it must proceed at the speed of the slowest ship. So it seems on the surface of it to be a dangerous way to try to protect your ships. But evidence demonstrated by 1917, there was no doubt that convoys were the most effective defense against U-boats. So in 1939, when war resumed again, uh, the British Institute convoys even before the declaration of war itself. So they did have that advantage. They did have that experience. The problem was they just didn't have enough escorts to protect those convoys. Uh, Destroyers are the most effective convoy protection ships. And the British had a certain number of those, but they lost a lot of them in the Norway camp. And they lost even more. They lost 19 of them in the evacuation of the troops from Dunkirk. So being very shorthanded in the number of escorts, that's what led Winston Churchill to go to Franklin Roosevelt and plead with him for some of those old American World War I four-stacker destroyers that were rusting away in mothballs along the American East Coast. And Roosevelt made a deal, the famous destroyer deal. Well, I can let you have 50 of these but only in exchange for 99-year leases on a dozen bases in the Western Hemisphere. It was actually a pretty good deal for both sides. Uh, the British thought they got the short end of the stick, and they may have been right in that. But Roosevelt had to, to uh, strike a pretty hard bargain because Congress and the American public were very suspicious about getting sucked into this European war. So they said, no, we're, we can't. We have to be neutral. We can't give those ships to the British. They have to give us something of value in return. But getting those additional ships helped a little bit. Uh, what helped more was British construction of a, a smaller escort craft called a corvette, um, kind of interesting group of ships. They were all named for flowers. <laughs> so they were known as flower-class corvettes. And it, it's a bit jarring to come across a, a confrontation between a British escort and a German U-boat where the British ship is named Buttercup or Bluebell. <laughs> but, but those are the kinds of names that they bore. But, so in 1940 and 41 in particular, when the war was young for the British, getting enough escorts to protect those convoys was absolutely critical for them. By 1943, with the United States fully in the war, its industrial productivity cranking out escorts at an unprecedented number, then it became possible to protect those escort, those convoys, not with one or possibly two escorts, but with six or 10 or 12. And that made a big difference. Of course, the Germans had their own advantage uh, for in World War II, which was they had the access to the bases uh, in Norway and especially France from which to stage U-boats. And that gets to what the, the first dramatic shift in terms of the naval war, which was both the ability of the U-boats to deploy from France and also the loss of the French fleet. And, and what you describe in, in, in that chapter is, is truly heartbreaking, where you have the, the, the British in a situation where they, they have to consider what to do about the French fleet. And you have these proud French admirals and sailors who are, are you know, facing this dilemma of, 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 of having to yeah, poss- of, of what might happen to their uh, fleet if, if uh, the Germans get a hold of it. And of course, the British are dealing with this as well. Yes, you use the word heartbreaking, and I think that's quite apt. It's very true. Uh, the fall of France in June of 1940 was a blow, of course, to 
the West. Uh, Americans thought, well, this meant Britain's going to give way. A lot of Britons thought this meant we're going to have to give way. Britain was now fighting alone from June of 1940, when France fell, until June of 1941, when Hitler stupidly invaded the Soviet Union. The British were the only people holding out against an entire European continent dominated uh, by the Axis, by the Nazis. And, and so Churchill knew the only hope Britain had of surviving was protecting its channel moat. This, of course, had been part of British grand strategy since William the Conqueror, the protection of the British Isles themselves, by possessing dominance at sea. And what threatened their dominance at sea was the fear that the Germans would somehow get their hands on the French fleet. Uh, the, the treaty agreement, the armistice agreement that the French were forced to sign at Compiègne in June of 1940, indicated that the Germans would have some say in the future of that fleet. It was left rather vague. Um, the French themselves, the French admirals in particular, pledged themselves to the British. We will never, never, under any circumstances, let the Germans get control of our ships. Most of them went to uh, French North Africa, where they would be beyond the reach of the Germans. But for Churchill, that was not enough. It's not enough that the French promised that they wouldn't. He had to make sure those ships were eliminated from the strategic map. And so he gave orders to the British Mediterranean fleet that if the French did not turn their ships over to the British or sail to the Western Hemisphere, where they would be off the strategic map, that they must be attacked and destroyed. Well, the American, excuse me, the British Admiral did not want to do that. This was horrifying for them. These are our allies. These are our friends. In two world wars, they've been our partners. And now you're telling me we must attack them? The French themselves couldn't believe the British would finally do it. But it was a measure of Churchill's determination and a measure of his determination to show the world how determined Britain was that they would never, ever, ever make peace that he ordered that strike. And so the uh, Mediterranean British fleet attacked the French fleet at Mers el Kabir, just west of Oran on the North African coast, uh, and sunk uh, two battleships, damaged others. Uh, loss of over 1,200 Frenchmen that were killed in that attack. Uh, the French were not even able to fire back because their ships were moored with all their forward batteries pointed toward the land, and they couldn't even target the British unless they unmoored, backed out, and turned around, and the British, of course, didn't give them a chance to do that. But you can, uh, you can almost imagine the British firing these salvos with tears running down their cheeks as they did so. Somerville, the British commander, afterward wrote his wife that we felt dirty and filthy afterward. But for Churchill, it was essential. A loss of command of the sea, even for a day, uh, would mean that the Germans could quite possibly put ground troops ashore on Britain, and that was intolerable. You mentioned how Britain you stood alone between June of 1940 and June 1941. And yet, as you explain in your book, they weren't, you know, they, they did have some considerable, some, some growing support from the United States over the course of 1941. You described this emerging, slowly developing engagement with the war on the part of the United States in terms of not just supporting the British, but, you know, by the fall of 1941, actively engaging uh, German vessels. Yeah, that's absolutely true. This undeclared naval war between the United States and Germany that most Americans did not even know about. 
not only at the time, but, but now even. There are very few uh, uh, people who don't have a deep understanding of the Second World War uh, had the view that somehow the United States was completely at peace and minding its own business when the Japanese struck at Pearl Harbor, and that's what dragged us into the war. And while that's mostly true, Roosevelt believed, uh, almost from 1939 onward, that the survival of Britain and the ultimate extinction of Nazi Germany was essential to American national security. And so he initially authorized the U.S. Navy to conduct what he called neutrality patrols out to 200 miles off the American coast. And they weren't fully neutral because if they ever sighted a German U-boat, they reported it immediately to the Royal Navy. But it went much beyond that. Then it extended from 200 miles to 400 miles to 600 miles and so on. At one point, he, that is President Roosevelt and Harry Hopkins, were sitting in the Oval Office and Roosevelt tore a page of the Atlantic, a map of the Atlantic out of the National Geographic, and with a pencil drew a line down the middle of it from Iceland down to the Azores and told Harry Hopkins to tell the British we would accept responsibility for protecting convoys up to that line, more than halfway across the Atlantic Ocean. Well, of course, that ultimately led to confrontations when German U-boats attacking a convoy found American warships in their way and there was actually shooting back and forth, torpedoes, depth charges, and so on. Um, in every case, Roosevelt presented this publicly as an unprovoked attack by these dastardly rattlesnakes, as he called them, in the Atlantic, and uh, giving American commanders permission not just to defend themselves, but to attack first, because clearly those nasty Germans had fired the first shot. So this kind of... of uh, uh, careful, not-so-nuanced, undeclared naval war in the North Atlantic had been going on for some months before Pearl Harbor. And you, as you made clear, it, you know, that uh, with the escalation happening at the same time as the United States is dealing with Japan, you get a sense of this global nature that while they're not necessarily factoring dealing with one uh, uh, power uh, while dealing with the other one. At the same time, there is definitely an effect taking place. You describe how they have to consider, you know, where did they station the bulk of the fleet? Well, with 1941, they're having to draw more vessels from the Pacific to uh, support operations in the Atlantic. And yet at the same time, they're dealing with this growing, you know, challenge from Japan that might very well escalate into some sort of uh, armed conflict. Yeah, the one great uh, strategic reality the United States had to deal with from its emergence as a great power in the late 19th century is that it's a continental nation with two great coastlines uh, operating under a strategic theory that the fleet should always be concentrated in order to be to have the maximum effect, but concentrated in the Atlantic or concentrated in the Pacific. That's one reason why the construction of the Panama Canal, which opened in 1914, was so critical to the United States. And Roosevelt had to balance where to put his forces. He moved, deliberately moved, the battle force in the Pacific out to Hawaii to act as a uh, restraining pressure on Japan, not only because of the ongoing war in China, but because Japan was eyeing hungrily the orphaned colonies of France and Holland in particular, and Britain as well, in uh, South Asia, uh, that had a lot of the natural resources, particularly oil, that the Japanese lacked. So in order to restrain their ambitions, he thought 
putting the battle fleet in Pearl Harbor would be helpful. That turned out perhaps uh, not to work out the way he had envisioned. But at the same time, he's fighting this this uh, shooting war in the North Atlantic and trying to satisfy the American public that we're operating as a neutral nation, we're not going to get involved, and so on. So it, it's a very delicate balancing act, both politically and strategically and logistically. And at one point, he's moving battleships and carriers from one ocean to the other, trying to find that balance. And it'll be a problem the United States will confront throughout the war. As you, I think nothing illustrates the the challenge that they were facing and, and, and the danger they're running than the events of the first uh, two-thirds of 1942, when after Pearl Harbor, when uh, Japan attacks the United States fleet and the United States, and then Hitler declares war on the United States just a few days later, the United States is facing the situation. And then, of course, now Britain is also facing this attack upon their colonies. And as you describe those, you know, six to nine months, of uh, uh, those first six to nine months of, of the changed conflict are some of the darkest of the war for the Allies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If Dunkirk was the darkest hour for the British, then the first six months of 1942 are the darkest hour for the United States. The Japanese uh, not only planned out this operation in the South Pacific very carefully, they executed it with clock-like efficiency. Uh, I mean, everyone knows about the attack on the Philippines, but of course, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Borneo, Java, Sumatra, Bali, all of these fell to the Japanese within that six-month period. And and they absolutely uh, were not only aggressive, but efficient in their aggressiveness. And it was, it was rather stunning. And I think what made it particularly stunning for Americans was that we had what can only be described as a kind of racist caricature uh, about the Japanese when we pictured as individuals who were only about five feet tall with bottled, uh, Coke bottle glasses and butt teeth who were kind of cartoon figures uh, in the American public opinion, so that they could execute a campaign like this was, was astonishing for us. And it really required a, a massive reassessment uh, during 1942. At the same time, though, the declaration of war on the United States uh, allows Dennett's to, uh, enables Dennett's to begin an attack on American vessels off the East Coast. And that proves to be just as debilitating for the war effort as the events in the Pacific. Well, Dennett certainly intended that. He, uh, he said in, in his diary that he intended for the operation of his U-boats off the American coast to have as great an impact as Pearl Harbor. It didn't quite uh, but nearly so. Uh, one of the reasons it didn't quite is he had so few boats. And this, of course, was his his uh, cry throughout the war, was that he never had quite as many U-boats as he needed. To get U-boats all the way across the Atlantic to the American coast means you, you need a certain kind of oversized, type called Type 9, uh, oversized U-boats. And he only had a handful of those. And, and uh, he was only allowed to use uh, maybe six of them off the coast for his initial uh, attacks in January of 1942. But even with that limited number of U-boats, they conducted a, a devastating campaign. Most of the oil shipments, and oil, of course, the lifeblood of war in the 20th century, most of the oil shipments in the United States from Louisiana and East Texas went by tanker. 
uh, early in the war. Later on, of course, they would go by, by railroad and by pipeline. But early in the war, they went by tanker around Florida and up along the American East Coast. And the bottleneck position was off Cape Hatteras. And that's where the U-boats went. And they would submerge during the day and lie doggo on the bottom and then come up at night. And those tankers would come by and much of the American coastline still illuminated by peacetime lights. Hard to convince Americans, yes, you are really at war, turn out your lights. And with that silhouetted uh, ship passing by, they would just pick them off almost like a shooting gallery. Uh, so for a couple of months, it was, it was pretty grim. Um, they executed a, a pretty effective campaign against particularly the tanker shipping on the American East Coast. So how then did the United States and the British turn the situation around? How, how did they uh, overcome this dramatic challenge they were now facing from the, 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 uh, the Kriegsmarine and the Imperial Japanese Navy? Yeah, there's two answers to that question. One is uh, that our technology did approve, particularly against the U-boats. The British had pioneered the use of what they called ASDIC, and which we called sonar, that is the ability to track uh, submerged submarines undersea with an echo ranging system. Uh, your listeners who have seen any World War II movie are familiar with that ping sound that allowed uh, skilled operators to determine the the distance, range, depth, and so forth of an of an enemy submarine. Uh, the forward throwing hedge hog uh, depth charge system. Prior to that. Uh, destroyers would attack a submarine by rolling barrel-sized depth charges off the stern. And that was relatively effective, but it may, meant they had to pass over the top of the submarine before they could deploy these weapons. The Hedgehog, which is a forward-mounted and forward-throwing weapon, meant that they could assume the offensive against submarines. And then most important in this technological characteristic is radar. The, the Germans tended to attack... Uh, the convoys on the surface at night. Now, being on the surface made sonar and ASDIC far less valuable to the defenders. Um, it meant that, that they uh, could just fire torpedoes into a convoy and have a pretty good chance of hitting something. And they were so small that they were all but invisible at night, but radar made them visible, and that allowed the escorts to go on the attack. So all of those technological changes, and I'll add to that one more, which is critical. Um, air cover for a convoy proved to be the single most effective anti-submarine device. Airplanes flying from uh, Greenland and Iceland, but more importantly, airplanes carried on small escort aircraft carriers, maybe only a dozen, half dozen even aircraft apiece. But if you had an aircraft carrier, a small one, that could accompany a convoy, they could bring their own air cover with them, and that dramatically changed the impact. But in addition to all of that, the single most important factor that allowed the Allies to overcome the German U-boat threat was that the United States' industrial productivity was so great that the United States could build ships faster than the Germans could sink them. And by 1943, that's what was happening. Uh, the Germans became less efficient in sinking ships at the same time that the Allies became more efficient in building them. So that whereas in 1940, the Germans sunk 10 ships to each one being built, in 1944, we were building 10 ships to each one that was sunk. So American industrial capability is, is really, in the end, I think, the single most important factor in determining how the Allies were able to win the Battle of the Atlantic. 
you also and it plays uh, uh, just as important a role in the Battle of the Pacific as well. You describe how very uh, how over time this the United States built up this enormous material advantage. What I also thought was very interesting though was how important radar was in terms of nullifying the Japanese advantage. How the Japanese went into the war with this uh, very uh, uh, well trained force of uh, of of surface officers uh, trained in night fighting and how this gave them an edge. And yet you point out throughout the book how radar was so decisive in terms of not only blunting that edge, but totally reversing it by 1943, 1944. Yeah, I think actually you expressed that very well. I can hardly do better myself. I think that is true. Uh, The Japanese in those early surface actions, particularly at Savo Island off Guadalcanal, in August of 1942, the Japanese sunk four Allied cruisers, three American and one Australian, and got off scot-free without even having a bullet land on board. Um, and then in a sequence of battles with uh, exotic names, Vela La Vela, uh, Tassafaranga, and so forth, throughout the Solomon Islands campaign, almost all of them at night, the Japanese proved better at two things, night optics. They could see better at night, not because of some cultural or physiological difference. They had uh, binoculars that were particularly designed to be able to allow them to do that. Uh, And also a much longer range and more efficient uh, surface launch torpedo, which the Allies called the Long Lance, uh, that was uh, had a longer range and a greater warhead, a thousand pound warhead uh, that was devastating against Americans. But by the end of that salt, that uh, campaign in the Solomon Islands, once radar, which is a brand new technology in the 1940s, once radar became pretty much common aboard not only the bigger ships, battleships and carriers, but also on the smaller ships, particularly destroyers and light cruisers, now the Americans could see in the dark so that they could see the Japanese electronically through radar before the Japanese with their night optics could see literally the American ships. That meant the Americans could open fire before the Japanese Japanese even knew they were in contact with an enemy force. Now, the, the torpedo remained very efficient. The Japanese torpedo versus American gunfire was the way many of these early battles played themselves out. But the emergence and development, and particularly the ability of American operators to figure out how to use the new radar system, not only to to navigate, to know where they were, but to use it in a fire control way, uh, that changed the dynamic of those surface actions in the South Pacific. The role of technology definitely uh, stands out throughout your book. And it's not just the cutting edge technologies that you describe of radar or uh, weapons technology, but you also have this very interesting analysis of these ostensibly mundane ships, the the LSTs. And I was particularly impressed by how they become something of a bottleneck in terms of the ability of the Allies to conduct operations in 1943 and 1944. That's absolutely true. Uh, I mentioned just a minute ago how important American industrial productivity was, and really it's almost hard to uh, overstress the importance and the unprecedented character of that uh, industrial productivity. But it wasn't infinite. They couldn't build everything. They had to prioritize. And in 1941 and 1942, the need for uh, transport ships, Liberty ships in particular, and escort ships to get them safely across the ocean had the highest priority. Um, 
only by 1943 when we began to look ahead and see that amphibious operations, not only in the Pacific, where obviously there were uh, operations from Guadalcanal all the way to Okinawa, more than a dozen of them, a score of them, but also in the Mediterranean from North Africa to Sicily to Italy, and then eventually Normandy and the D-Day landings, all of those could only be conducted by these specially designed, and as you described them, sort of mundane ships, the landing ship tank, the LST. Um, and, and because they're not flashy, they're not carriers, they're not battleships, they don't have big guns, uh, and yet they prove to be uh, arguably the more, most critical ship type by late 1943. And because of that adjustment in priorities, we just didn't have enough of them. Uh, it was the availability of the number of LSTs, which were capable of carrying heavy tanks, the Sherman tanks and the big deuce and a half trucks, plus jeeps and artillery, all the kinds of equipment necessary to modern land warfare, carry them right up to the beach. They'd grind up on the sand at a flat bottom. They'd open big bow doors like a cupboard, and those tanks and trucks could roll out right onto a defended beach. It's hard to imagine how the Allies could have conducted amphibious operations at all without the LST, and yet because we didn't have enough of them, the planners it couldn't say, well, let's, let's do this. They had to say, can we do this because of the available of LSTs? And, and here's, again, another example of that butterfly effect. The need for LSTs, for example, to sustain the landing beach at Anzio on the Italian coast behind the German lines, that sucked up 63 LSTs that had been designated for the landings in northern France for D-Day. And because you can't be in two places at the same time, D-Day was actually postponed for a full month so that the Allies could accumulate more LSTs to be able to conduct, conduct the uh, operations at Normandy. You make the case that the LSTs are important not just during the invasion itself of, of Normandy, but also how they deserve the lion's share of credit for sustaining that uh, Allied uh, uh, operations in northern France until they finally opened up Cherbourg in uh, August of 1944. That's absolutely true. Um, I think there's a tendency, and maybe modern filmmakers are responsible in part for this, to think that the land, a landing such as at D-Day meant that all these Higgins boats, these troop-carrying small uh, landing vessels, would grind up on the sand, and Tom Hanks and his platoon would rush up onto the sand, and, and then finally they'd, they'd conquer and move inland. Well, keep in mind, that initial landing, dangerous and horrible as it was, was followed 15 to 20 minutes later by a second wave, and then a third, and then a fourth. And this went on all day on June 6th, and it went on all day on June 7th, and June 8th, and June 9th, and all the way into July. The invasion of Nazi-occupied Europe was not a single rush ashore by a group of intrepid men. It was a gradual buildup and then a sustaining of those men, not only bringing in reinforcements, bringing in the food they had to eat, the ammunition they fired off, and all the other supplies and equipment needed to replace the crippled equipment that they lost in combat. So this meant that there was a constant uh, logistical a pipeline, if you would, across the English Channel. And some of those LSTs made as many as 100 
round trips back and forth over the ensuing six weeks after the initial D-Day to keep that force going until the Allies could control the major landing ports at Cherbourg and then later at Antwerp. As you explained, the LSTs are every bit as vital to the Pacific, but there the dynamic is different. You talk about how the LSTs are loaded in uh, the English ports, and then they go to France, and they make that journey uh, repeatedly. The, by contrast, in the Pacific, they load the LSTs in Pearl Harbor. And I was especially struck when you're describing the invasion of Saipan, how they have to cross, what was it, 3,000 miles before they, they, they even got to the beach? And that was basically a, a one-shot deal. Yeah, in some cases, that's true. Now, not all of the, the uh, LSTs uh, loaded up in Pearl Harbor, but a large number of them did. There were interim places they could load up as well. But, but it did mean that the targeted beaches in the Pacific were, as you suggest, sometimes many hundreds or thousands uh, even of miles from the base uh, of operations. And that meant that whatever they were going to use to capture that hard target had to be brought with them pretty much in the initial invasion fleet. Um, and, and that created a different set of logistical problems. Uh, the, the size of the fleet, here's an example that, that perhaps you were going to ask about later anyway, but let me jump ahead to it. And that is that the idea that the D-Day invasion took place in June of 1944. So did the American invasion of Saipan take place in June of 1944. And you think about the fact that here are the Allies, and particularly the United States, mounting two major amphibious operations on opposite sides of the globe at the same time. That's a a dramatic demonstration of the ability of the United States industrial capacity by 1944 to crank out the weapons of war and particularly the shipping necessary to carry them them to the battlefields that allowed them to win the Second World War. The contrast especially stands out when you compare them to the Japanese who are facing their own incredibly uh, uh, incredible logistical difficulties. And as you described, they're not surmounting them anywhere near as successfully. No. Well, of course, Japan's, Japan's dilemma from the beginning, even before the war began, Japan's dilemma is that fate, if you want to call it fate, had deprived them of most of the necessary raw materials of a modern industrial society. Japan's modernization was very dramatic from the late 19th century into the 20th century, almost within two generations. It went from a near medieval society to a modern industrial society, and yet did so unable to produce most of the oil, the iron, the tin, the tungsten, and many of the raw materials necessary to sustain an industrial society. That's why those southern islands were so tempting to them. But because they lacked all that, their industrial capacity was limited, especially compared to American industrial capacity. The American gross domestic product was many multiples that of Japan. So the United States could simply outbuild them and outproduce them. And the Japan found themselves increasingly, even when they would win a battle, they would find that the losses accepted in that battle meant that they, they were depleted in their ability to confront the next American threat. So, so they were in a situation that was almost insurmountable for them, uh, almost from the beginning of the war. And yet you make the point that even when you're talking about the campaigns in 1944, the, the Battle of the Philippine Sea, the Battle of Lady Gulf, Japan still has, I, I believe it was the third or fourth largest navy in the world, even at that point. They did. They did. And, and of course, uh, the Japanese had from the beginning thought that, well, 
here's the way this is going to work out. We will capture this giant resource base, which will make us economically self-sustaining. And we'll put bases on the outlying islands of these in Micronesia and elsewhere, the Marshalls, the Gilberts, and so forth. Uh, and when the Americans try to make a comeback after they recover from their loss of Pearl Harbor, and they expected the Americans would try it, that the Japanese might not beat them, but that what they would do was inflict so much punishment, so much damage, as the Americans worked their way forward through this web of island bases and take so many losses that after a year or two years, possibly three, the Americans who don't, in the Japanese view, have the kind of staying power, the, what Americans would say was guts, uh, and the Japanese call the Yamato Damashi, uh, that is the, the spirit of the warrior, um, that the Americans would eventually say, oh, this is too expensive, it's too costly, let's negotiate. And that would allow them to survive the war. So they'd been looking from the beginning for a decisive naval action that would demonstrate to the Americans the hopelessness of their ability to fight their way through this web. And that was going to take place someplace in the Philippine Sea. So the Battle of the Philippine Sea and then subsequently the Battle of Leyte Gulf was where the Japanese looked for that decisive naval battle that would turn the war around. The model that they had in mind was the Battle of Tsushima against the Russians in 1905 in the Russo-Japanese War, where a single naval battle had compelled the Russians to go to the negotiating table and bring an end to the war. Even though Russia was a much larger country, Japan ended up achieving most of its political goals because of that decisive naval battle. So in those two actions, the Japanese kind of pulled together whatever resources they had left for a, a decisive stroke, and in both cases, uh, it proved disastrous and left them with almost no Navy at all. What was it that ultimately was so decisive in those conflicts? Well, not to, to uh, beat a dead horse, but American superiority. You know, the Americans had something like 15 aircraft carriers to deploy in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, and the Japanese had six or seven, depending on how you count. Um, the Japanese hoped they could compensate for that by the longer range of their aircraft. Their aircraft could fly further because most of them were unarmored. Well, of course, that also made them very vulnerable so that when they were hit, the plane went down, and often the pilot went down with it. And the losses in Japanese aircraft, and particularly trained Japanese pilots, was devastating to them. Um, I, I think that one of the differences, and this is cultural, is that the Japanese kept most of their best pilots on the front line through the first year and a half, two years of war, until there were very few of those pilots left. The Americans took most of their best pilots, sent them back to the United States to become pilot instructors for a whole new generation of pilots to fly the thousands of airplanes being cranked out of American factories. In 1941, Japan's naval air pilots were the best in the world. By 1943, that's not true anymore. So I think that's one of the big differences. You point out that the Japanese have this, uh, you know, this, this, uh, you know, vision of the decisive battle, and yet you also explain that it wasn't unique to Japan. The United States had that same uh, concept as well because they were deriving it from the same source, and how that. Uh, shaped how the Americans viewed both the Battle of the Philippine Sea and also the Battle of Leyte Gulf. 
And, and it affected the way they behaved in both of those engagements, um, as I talk about in the book. And I won't do here because it's very complicated and has a lot to do with personality as well as strategic planning. But you're absolutely right. The Americans did conceive that at some point there would be a battle like, well, let's say Trafalgar, some decisive engagement. Midway is a, probably the closest example to it in June of 1942. That tipped the war in terms of who had the initiative up until June of 1942. The Japanese were pretty much calling all the shots. After the Battle of Midway in June of 42, uh, the Americans were initiating virtually all of the confrontations. But it wasn't decisive in the sense of ending the war. It was decisive in changing the trajectory of the war. But the Americans continued to hope for a midway-like confrontation that would annihilate the Imperial Japanese Navy. And it's one of the reasons that uh, Admiral Halsey made the decisions he did at Leyte Gulf. And that's, of course, an extremely complex and controversial set of circumstances that I, I tried to work out in the book. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, it's interesting. I just completed a nearly 800-page history of all of World War II at sea. I'm going to take a little bit of a break. <laughs> uh, I am I am working again. I, I mentioned at the outset that I'm uh, at the Naval War College in Newport, which is a great job, and I'm teaching officers, most of them Navy commanders and Army uh, lieutenant colonels and majors, some Air Force majors and colonels, uh, State Department people. So these are people in the mid-career who are slotted for future command. And talking with them about strategy and policy and history is is a terrific job. So I'm, I'm going to focus on that for a while. Uh, but uh, you can count on the fact that I will eventually get back to the library and start another project. Well, when you uh, complete it, I definitely look forward to reading it. Uh, Craig Simons, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.